Welcome to the Dublin Bible Talks, midweek Bible talks for workers in Dublin. I'm Cameron Jones. You might think that the first recipients of this letter of Paul called Ephesians had good reason to feel discouraged. After all, Paul is in prison for what they have come to believe. We're unlikely to be jailed for what we believe, but real Christian faith hardly makes life easier. Is it really worth continuing? In the passage we looked at today, Ephesians 3, 14-21, Paul, writing from his chains, says yes. And please consider joining us live on Wednesdays from your workplace, 1pm Dublin time on Zoom. It's a simple way of identifying as a Christian in your workplace. Simply use the link bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. That's bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. Well friends, our passage today, you will notice, begins with the words, For this reason. It's ending Paul's aside that we looked at last week, and it connects it with chapter 3, verse 1, which you'll see those words again for this reason. And so it's a good idea to review what that reason is. You'll remember it's uh, uh, this letter is probably a circular letter, one sent to multiple churches in an area that we now call Turkey. Overall, the theme of this letter has been a study, a a celebration of the impact of the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. It's probably the most significant event in the history of the world, what this is celebrating. I listened to a podcast this week interviewing uh, a guy called Glenn Scrivener, who says that remembering Jesus, this man from way back then, Remembering Jesus is like the world remembering in 2,000 years' time a mechanic from remote Ukraine and taking his sayings as the basis for the words, much of the world's culture and morality. A builder from the backwater of Israel has become the most influential character in world history. Even if people forget the origins of their own thinking, He is the origin of many people's morality. And in that podcast, Glenn Scrivener, this chap, talked about how he often responds to people who talk about the atrocities perpetrated by people who call themselves Christian. And his approach is to agree with them, even to show that what these people did was worse than they said. So he stands shoulder to shoulder with the person who's pointed this out. And then shoulder to shoulder with them, he says... What are we standing on? What is the basis for this moral position, this moral outrage that we share together? It's Christianity. Pre-Christian and non-Christian cultures are not shocked by things like genital mutilation. Other cultures don't conceive a separation of church and state. Look at Narendra Modi in India, who said to be Indian is to be Hindu. To think that a ruler is not a law by themselves, but is actually subject to the law. All of those things come from Jesus. Someone like Harvey Weinstein, cancelled rightly for his behaviour. We would say loudly good. But if you look back to Rome, what would he be? Well, he'd be a powerful and successful senator. It would be business as usual what he did. It's a particularly and peculiarly Christian thing to say that a, a man should restrain their sexuality and that a man should treat a woman and treat children with dignity and respect as equals and honour their bodily autonomy. 
until Christianity spread over the world, those were unthought of ideas. The way that the teaching of the Bible has influenced laws and customs and values around the world may or may not be something that people like, but it's a fact. But the question is, how on earth did that come to be? Friends, it would not have happened if Jesus had not risen from the dead. A professor of ancient history at Macquarie University in Sydney, a man called Edwin Judge, says, There is a hole in history, and it's resurrection-shaped. And what we're learning from this letter from Paul is that all the things that we might list as the impact of Christianity on the world are just ripple effects of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That historic event is at the heart of God's plan for all things. Just consider with me how Christianity is different to other religions for a moment. Because Christianity does not start with moral teaching from Jesus. It's not the moral teaching that is the basis. We get confused about that because other religions are based on the teaching of the leader. Buddhism is based on the teaching of Siddhartha Gautama. But if someone else had come up with those ideas, it wouldn't change the religion, would it? In Islam, trying to use a respectful language, if Allah had chosen someone other than Muhammad to record the Quran, it wouldn't have made any difference. But Jesus' teaching would have had no impact at all in the world except that he rose from the dead. It's about him and what he did. Only then are his teachings valid or important. This event in history is at the heart of God's plan for all things, and all things includes all people. Do you remember the description of the plan back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10? He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The English Standard Version translates verse 10 more simply, the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Well, how can we believe that there is such a plan? because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we've heard about Paul's prayers for people, just like us, because of the reality of the resurrection from the dead. 1 verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope, the plan to which he has called you. What is the power that has worked this in us? Well, Chapter 1, verse 19, the second half of it, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. What Paul wants is for us to stop. He wants us to stop and see the extraordinary significance of the resurrection of Jesus, to think on it, to marvel at it. Because of God's grace, his undeserved generosity toward us, we Christians are caught up in God's plan in the most wonderful way. Remember chapter 2 verse 4? But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us, in Christ Jesus. Last week, Daphne sent me a message uh, 
about the verses that follow immediately after that. This is what she said. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 10 are the most beautiful verses I have come across in the Bible, but also contradictory for me based on the Roman Catholic teaching and practices. The Bible says we're not saved by our works. God's salvation is dependent on his grace, not my efforts. He saved me despite being a sinner. Yet as a Roman Catholic, I always thought with communion, confession and other sacraments, these are the actions we have to do to be saved. It seems that we have some works it seems that we have some works to be to obtain God's grace if we're Roman Catholic. I'm now very curious to learn how these verses would be interpreted in my church by my priest because I think the Bible is clear in this instance. Ephesians reminds me of Romans where Paul explains how we are saved as Gentiles, where Jesus brings Jews and Gentiles together as one through his grace for humanity. What a great thing to learn from what we've been looking at. And Paul makes clear that his plan of God, this plan of God centred on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this brings together from across every division of humanity a new unity. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And last week we saw what qualifies Paul to teach this message. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this plan, this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And Paul goes on in chapter 4, which we're getting to next week, to apply this to our everyday lives, especially in relationship with other Christians as we gather together. So there's a summary, but in this passage we're looking at today, it's a bit difficult to tell, first of all, because it's God's plan for the whole universe is such an enormous idea, it's hard to get into our heads. But it's also difficult for us to wrestle with because our experience of life seems to be saying something different to us to what this is saying. And sometimes that makes it hard for us to keep believing that what God says is really true. I mean, as you see the news and you see all the things going on in the world, the, the war in Ukraine and in Israel and Gaza. I mean, I watched a, sh and I watched a show last night about um, a Lithuanian man in England who escaped modern slavery and had lived in the woods for five years by himself. With that kind of thing going on, not just over there, but near nearby us, isn't it easy to ask, how, how is this plan of God going? As the world operates in a way that rejects everything that I've learned about Christianity and Christian living, as the values of society promoted by celebrities and influencers, by very clever people, they, they, just don't, they just don't seem to believe. And isn't it easy for us to think, how is my believing in God's plan fitting with the way the world is looking? And we don't even look need to look at the world, do we? Our everyday lives are full of disappointments and deep sadnesses. And we can maybe look forward and see things in the future might be frightening for us. Maybe there are things in your mind right now that make you wonder, is God really rich in mercy? Show me this blessed, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Perhaps the resurrection of Jesus seems a long, a long time ago 
and life is so much more real to you right now. Well, if you're thinking that way, you're not alone. You're not the first person to think it's hard to keep believing what we believe because believing it seems to make life more difficult, less comfortable. And remember where Paul is as he's writing this. He's in a Roman prison in chains. The leader of the Christian movement in a dungeon. And if you look at what he's just said to the people he's writing to in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, I ask you, therefore, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. You only say don't be discouraged to someone who is feeling discouraged. Because Paul's getting, uh, uh, Paul gets that it is easy to be discouraged in this kind of situation in this world. It's easy to get disillusioned when the one who's saying these things about the great victory of Jesus is in a prison. And so we come to 3.14 for this reason. Because of all that he's written so far, because it really is true, but it doesn't look like it, (laughs) you're going to find it easy to feel discouraged. For this reason, what does he do? He kneels before the Father and prays. And that is the most sensible thing to do. If God really has a plan, and if we're included in that plan, then it is God who will bring it about. And so best to go to him with our requests. What does he call the almighty creator and ruler of the universe? Did you notice he calls him father? Maybe that's become so normal to us because we've grown up in a Christianized society. But do you... Can you think about how abnormal that is? And what kind of father? Well, the perfect father, good, wise, strong, rich in mercy, love and grace. Our own fathers might have been a little bit like that. Some of us were not like that at all. Most of them were probably in between. But even if your experience of a father was bad, you only know that it was bad because you have an idea in your head of what a good father should be. Fatherhood is a good thing. I think it's currently very undervalued in our society. It's a very great privilege to have had a good father. I had one. Oh, but he was imperfect, and my brother and my sister might have had different experiences to me. But Paul speaks here of the perfect father, God the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God the Father claims every family that has ever existed as his own. God has his name written as the true and right father, the real source of every family in the world. No matter what their nationality, no matter what their beliefs, he's concerned for every family, for he is God and father of all. We bear his name in that we are all ultimately belonging to him. Like a silversmith puts a mark on all his work. Um, I have, just on the side here, uh, a little piece of silver, um, an old piece of silver. It's an old uh, cigarette case from, I think, the Second World War. Um, But just inside, I'm not sure if you'll be able to see it if I hold it up, you can see stamps. The mark of the maker. 
This was made by someone, like we are made by someone. And in the same way as this cigarette case has the mark of its maker in it, we have on us the mark of our maker. We are actually made in his image, in stamped with him. Of course, Christians have another mark too, and we're going to get that to um, to that in a little bit more detail. But we are marked by God's Spirit as well. But for now, remember back to God's plan revealed in His purpose for Abraham in Genesis chapter twelve, verses one to three. Do you remember the third part of God's promise? That blessing would come to all the families of the earth. Now, I think that's the part of the Old Testament that. Paul has in mind as he talks about God being uh, the the father of all nations, every every person bearing his name, every family bearing his name. So before this father, who has his name, his maker's mark on every family, Paul bows his knee. And what does he pray? Sixteen, I pray that out of the good, glorious riches, his glorious riches, he might strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Praying for inner strength. What we're usually impressed by in this world is outward strength, isn't it? Someone's physique, their power to dominate physically, or their powerful intellect, their quickness of thought that can make clever arguments, or powerful charisma that wins people to your side rather than the other person's side. It's something that builds power by numbers, by force of character. But no, Paul says what we really need to be strengthened with is power in our inner being. Well, what is that? Does he just mean be strong-minded? Does he mean be stubborn? Does it mean refusing to listen? Well, no, it doesn't. Look at what Paul says is the source of the inner strength. He says, the inner strength from his glorious riches. Now, it's not our riches, it's his riches. Not our strength of character, but his strength of character from his glorious riches. And notice that this is not something that we achieve. Notice something. Notice it's something that we receive. I'll say that again, it's not something we achieve, it's something that we receive. We're passive in this. Notice it says that he might strengthen you, that he will give you strength. The strength prayed for is not yours, it's not mine, it's not something we can work at to better our performance in it, but it is God's strength that can be given by him to us. And Paul is asking God to give this gift of inner strength. But how does God give this gift of inner strength? Well, he tells them in verse 16, doesn't he? He says, through his spirit. But what does that mean? Friends, the more I read the Bible, the more I see the way that God speaks about his spirit's work. Remember that the word used for spirit in the languages of both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same word as breath. God's spirit is his breath. And all the way back in the account of creation, as God's breath hovered over the deep, the work of God's spirit is through God's word. 
And God said, and it was. Through his spirit means as God breathes his word to us, as God himself stamps on us his truth, confirms to us his promises of his love, his mercy, his plan. There's another parallel to the silvermaker illustration I gave before. We Christians don't just have the maker's mark, but he marks us as being his own for his household's use. By the Spirit, as we hear God's word, as we hear the Bible read, and as we study God's word, we're impressed. He marks us, he shapes us, he preserves us, he strengthens us for his purposes. And as we hear his word, just like what we're doing now, that is the way that God uses to strengthen you with power in your inner being by his Spirit. It's what we pray will happen every time we hear God's word. That's why we start all of these sessions with prayer. And maybe you can remember particular times that you've heard God's word and been struck by it. You've been moved to action, moved to repentance, moved to praise God or moved to ask him for something that you didn't previously even know that you needed. A little bit like the note I received from Daphne, having heard Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, she was both encouraged and confronted. And by hearing God's word carried by his spirit, she has been strengthened in her inner being by God's spirit. When that happens, as we read and study and listen to the Bible, what is happening is that God is pressing his word into us. And he's doing that by his breath, by his spirit, as we hear it. And verse 17 says much the same thing, but uses different words. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Faith is deep trust in Jesus Christ. And our hearts, well, that's Bible language for the core of who we are. When our confidence and trust and certainty and security is in Jesus Christ, when Christ dwells in our hearts, in all that we devote all of our being to, trusting him, that is the inner strength that God gives us. And many of us know it and its work in us. It's the it's what in the face of the news and wars and deaths and murders and injustice and homelessness and all the awfulness of the world in my heart trusting the risen Jesus keeps me from despair from discouragement as the world around us including friends family neighbors colleagues as they all reject God and his ways and even turn on us because we love God in my heart I trust Christ and I do not lose heart that is the inner strength we need now the second thing that Paul asks for is deeply connected with that idea and it starts in the second half of verse 17 you see there and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What is it that we need this inner spiritual strength for? 
that this is a surprise, the answer is a surprise, maybe tells us quite how much we need God's spirit-driven word to imprint these patterns of thinking on our lives. We need this inner strength so that we can comprehend the love of Christ. Friends, our problem in this world is that is so full of pain and suffering and conflict, even directed toward us, maybe we feel it even in our workplace. As that's going on, it's not easy to see love, is it? It's not hard to see hate and resentment and bitterness in the world. Every so often we see people trying to help and any number of charities, but it doesn't, doesn't it, it seem feeble and inadequate? But as we look at those attempts, even in our own lives, we need to consider that amongst all of the awful things and all of the challenges, we should consider, we, we need a constant reminder that there is only one thing preventing those things from being even worse. And what is even holding your life and my life together is God's love. Verse 17, as we are strengthened by God's spirit-carried word to trust Christ, Paul prays that our life will have its roots deeply in love. And that is really quite extraordinary, friends. Not rooted in resentment. But that's because resentment is not at the heart of the universe. And neither is fear or anxiety. Those things that drive so many things in our world. Paul's prayer is that we Christians will have the strength to comprehend the vastness of God's love in a world that seems devoted to everything and anything else. <laughs> Even the slogan that's often thrown around nowadays, love is love, ends up being a statement of aggression towards anyone who disagrees. But real love, that's what's at the centre of all reality, no matter how much the world wants to run from it. And we Christians need God's power to appreciate how long it is, how high it is, how deep it is. Wide and long enough to travel throughout the whole world and the whole universe. Higher than the greatest arrogance of humanity and even able to humble it. Deeper than the deepest pit of despair and loss. <laughs> I remember a chorus that we used to sing as children um, and if you'll forgive me, it goes, uh, um, Wide, wide as the ocean, high as the heavens above, Deep, deep as the deepest sea is my Saviour's love. I'm oh so unworthy, still I'm a child of his care, For his word teaches me that his love reaches me everywhere. Friends, do you know that love? That is the love of Christ. But notice the paradox in verse 19. It says that this love is beyond knowledge, and yet he's praying that we'll know it. See Christ on the cross, laying down his life for you. See him raised from dead as your loving saviour. Do you understand it fully? Of course not. Do you know it, though? Paul's prayer and our prayer is that this love will be the air we breathe. Now we're almost at the end, so if you possibly can, stay with me just for another couple of minutes. Paul's third point begins bringing all of this together. 
verse 19, the second half, filled with, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That expression that is so often used in our culture, he's so full of himself or she's so full of herself, that means arrogance, being prideful, conceited, being condescending toward others. How many of the world's troubles are due to people getting carried away with how good they are or how capable they think they are? Maybe you've heard of the Peter Principle in business, uh, where people are promoted to their point of incompetence. The problem is that apart from trying to address this, which is almost impossible, people don't seem to recognise it in themselves. People being so full of themselves is not just other people, is it? It's sometimes also true of us. But what should we be like instead? Well, we should be filled with God, filled with all the fullness of God. What would that mean? Well, it would mean being strengthened to know the vast dimensions of Christ's love, so that in our inner being we are made able to trust him deeply, so that our lives would be planted in the rich soil of his love, built on the solid foundation of his love, and when God, in his great glorious mercy, does this, there is no room for us to be full of ourselves, but only be full of him. Friends, do you think that is possible? Do you think it's possible for it to be your experience? Or maybe you're struggling at the moment. And even if you aren't struggling now, you will at some stage, probably soon. So we need to listen to verse 20 carefully. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Friends, what is beyond us is not beyond him. In the church, as Christians gather together, and in Christ Jesus, again, what has happened to Jesus, his resurrection, has by God's mercy also happened to those of us who trust in Jesus, who are in him. In the glory of God, if the glory of God is displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it also happens to us as we are joined to him, like a tandem parachute jump when the instructor pulls the cord and the parachute deploys. What happens to the instructor also happens to the one strapped to them. And as we trust Jesus in our hearts, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the recording of the Dublin Bible Talks. You can join us in real time on Wednesdays at 1pm Dublin time on Zoom, bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. That's bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks.